Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. Acts chapter number one, going to read the first three verses. And so tonight's going to be kind of introductory, getting our feel, an overall uh, bird's eye view of the book of Acts. And so we'll just get our feet wet here tonight. And I'll try to be mindful of your time here this evening. The Bible says, Acts one and verse number one, uh, the writer says, The former treaties have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up after that he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen to whom also he shewed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs being seen of them 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God and tonight for this first uh, part or lesson on the book of Acts I'd simply like to call it this the unfinished record Because Acts is basically that, the unfinished record. It is still yet being written uh, today, the unfinished record. Can we pray right now? Father, I come to you tonight. God, I'm thankful, Lord Jesus, to be here. I'm thankful, Lord God, for those that have gathered together tonight, God, to center our lives once again around your word. God, help us, Lord Jesus, in the next several weeks as we consider the book of Acts. God, the unfillings of the Holy Ghost, the miracles, the signs, and the wonders that are contained in the pages of these books. God, that should be a continuation even in our generation, in our day. God, will not fail, Lord, to thank you or praise you, God, for your word. It can find, Lord Jesus, a place of security in our lives and change us and challenge us. In the lovely name of Jesus Christ that I pray, Amen and amen. Amen? Amen. You may be seated tonight in Jesus' name. The unfinished record. The book of Acts. The book of Acts in reality is kind of a sequel to the gospel of Luke. It opens up, Acts does, speaking to a man by the name of Theophilus and tells him, the writer does, that the former treaties have I made, O Theophilus. And so if this writer is speaking of a former treaty, we're considering what that other treaty might be. And so when we understand, when we look at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke and hear the book of Acts, we understand that the writer both addressed a man by the name of Theophilus in both of these books. And if you ever have a hard time remembering uh, Theophilus, you just remember he was the man with the awfulest name there was. All right just the man with the awfulest name that there was I ain't gonna say that my grandpa's name was the awfulest so I have an uncle who's the awfulest so uh, nevertheless that stays right here within these four walls okay no <laughs> I'm just joking Luke chapter number one though so he penned to a man by the name of the as well Luke 1 and 1 the gospel of Luke he says for as much as ye have been have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also. And we know, here's the thing, we know unequivocally that the, the, Luke, the gospel of Luke was written by Luke. And Luke says there's been several people that have set their hand to the pen to write a recording of the things that have happened in our day. People that were 
actually even eyewitnesses of what the Lord did, what Christ did in his earthly ministry. And he says, it's been good to me also to do uh, the very same thing, to do a recording of the life in the ministry of Jesus Christ. Because he attested in verse 3 that he had perfect understanding of all things, even from the very first. He said, to write to thee in order. He said, most excellent Theophilus. And so there he is addressing Theophilus uh, this first time in the Gospel of Luke. In verse 4, that thou mayest know the certainty of those things, the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ, wherein thou hast been instructed. So he addresses Theophilus in, in Luke. He addresses him in Acts. So when he begins Acts and says, the former treaties have I spoken to you, Theophilus, then we can come to a deduction tonight that the writer of Acts is the writer of Luke. And so this is uh, Luke, who is the author of both these books. So Acts, in many regards, is just kind of the second volume of Luke. It's just a continuation, if you will, of Luke. And he speaks to this man, Theophilus, whose name means friend or lover of God. It may be, any, may be even interpreted as uh, loved of God. Not that just he was a lover of God, but also that he was loved. There was an affection that he received from God concerning himself. In Luke 1, Luke addresses him as the most excellent in Luke chapter number 1. And the word excellent in Luke 1 is the very same word that is used for two governors of Rome in the book of Acts. They are both called, Festus and Felix are both called excellent as well. Luke uses that adjective to describe them. And so there is a chance, a, a perhaps, that Theophilus may have been a high-ranking official as well as uh, uh, Felix and Festus were. And since that is the case, that, that may be why that Paul throughout, or rather Luke throughout the writing of the book of Acts, may have used so much space in the book of Acts of Paul's dealings with the Roman government whenever he was incarcerated and in prison. And you're all the time reading that Paul came before a council of people and he oftentimes gave his testimony and what God had done in his life. And that may be taking place because he is writing these books of Luke and Acts, particularly unto Theophilus. And Theophilus may have been a high-ranking official in the Roman government. And that would be the reason that he may give so much information concerning those things. When we consider Luke as the author, Luke is a very educated man. As a matter of fact, scholars who would look over the Greek words and the phrases and the sentences of Acts and Luke come to find out that he is very precise and very, very well educated whenever it even comes to the Greek language. But more so even than that, the Bible tells us even in Colossians 4 that this individual Luke is called the beloved physician. He's an educated man, yes, because he is, by and large, a physician. As a matter of fact, throughout uh, many of the epistles, uh, we understand, and even the gospel of Luke, that there are many, he's so educated, he, he just shares it all the time. If you read out of the, the four gospels, the gospel of Luke, you'll come to find out that Luke's chapters and Luke's verses in the chapters are longer by and large than almost any other of the gospel writers. Whenever you start reading Luke and you read some of the chapters of Luke, you're getting to 50 some odd verses within a chapter many times as you read Luke. So he's very detailed oriented and he is a fellow laborer with Paul. Whenever Paul was writing the scriptures of Philemon 1, 23 and 24. He named some of those that were fellow laborers with him and one that he stated was 
Lucas, which is another, another way that Luke was written uh, in New Testament scripture. And so Luke was a fellow laborer with Paul. And so even so much so that Paul, whenever he was in his imprisonment in, in Rome, uh, his final imprisonment there, that he spoke to us in 2 Timothy 4, he said that only Luke is with me. Everybody else evidently had fell off the path or the trail along the way. We know Demas had forsaken him, but Luke was the only one that was still yet with him. And so he traveled a lot with the Apostle Paul. And we see this, we see this even concretely in the book of Acts that Luke has traveled with Paul because as you read the book of Acts you'll read many times as the writer is writing he's talking about they or them and that so on and so forth but whenever he comes to chapter 16 he's not just talking about they but he says we and so the writer is saying now I'm a part of this party I'm talking about Many times, even whenever he's making reference to Paul, he's talking about we, because in chapter 16 through chapter 28 of the book of Acts, here is Luke that is a companion and a fellow laborer with Paul on some of his missionary journeys. And when you look at Luke, him being such a detailed individual, if you were to look at the New Testament and you were to take the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts and you would look at them in terms of content, both Luke and Acts together make up over one quarter of the content of the New Testament scripture. Just those two books. So whenever Luke put his pen down to write, honey, he was inspired of the Holy Ghost to write a lot. <laughs> and he did so in these two books. And from what we can tell, from what we can tell from the studying of God's word and history and so on and so forth, what we can tell is that Luke is the only Gentile writer of the Bible. Every other writer of New Testament, Old Testament scripture were usually Jew as far as heritage, but Luke was, as far as we can tell, the only Gentile writer in the New Testament scripture, which speaks a lot concerning him. And so when we look at the book of Acts, many of us will call it just that, the Acts, or we call it the book of Acts. But some of those from the early centuries, I think it was somewhere around the second century, they started to call it the Acts of the Apostles. And maybe even in your Bible, it is written as the Acts of the Apostles, which is a little unique or peculiar because there are really only primarily two apostles that are mainly focused on in the book of Acts. For about the first half of Acts, there's only really Peter. He's in the limelight that there's a big focus on. And then the second half of the book of Acts, there is Paul who is largely focused upon. And then you see a little, little smatterings of Philip here and John there and James here that have lesser, lesser accounts or smaller accounts, I should say, to their story. And sometimes you might see all their names listed, but primarily it's Peter and Paul that there is a lot that is written about in the book of Acts. And although Luke concentrates on Peter and Paul, uh, the church that we see birthed in the book of Acts, of course, doesn't just consist of Peter and Paul. Luke names, by personal name, over 100 names in the book of Acts. So the church is more than just two people. Thank God that it is. But it's all types of people from all types of walks of life and races and occupations that are involved in participants in the church. If you were to outline the book of Acts, this is just an overview for us tonight. If you were to outline the book of Acts according to uh, the chapters and what they concentrate on as far as a character or a personality or a person. Acts chapters 1 through 5 primarily deal with the Apostle Peter. When we come to Acts 6 and 7, it's in those that Stephen is, is, is put into a place of one of the seven to serve tables. And then in the very next chapter, he tells his long old story. <laughs> 
stretching all the way back to Abraham of the history of the Jews up to the present time. So it's primarily Stephen. Then chapters 8 through 12, there's several different individuals that are focused upon. There's a man by the name of Barnabas. Philip, one of the apostles, is focused upon. Saul of Tarsus is focused upon. But when we get to chapter 13 onward, all the way to 28, primarily it is all about the apostle Paul and what God did through and with his life. So the book of Acts, if you divide it in half, the first half, we're looking at Peter. Peter that started it on the day of Pentecost with his response to the question, what must we do? But it's not just that. It's not just a a changing of the guard from Peter to Paul. But we also see something happening with the message and the gospel of Christ. Then the first half of the book, it's really, really focused upon the Jews. And it's going out from the city of Jerusalem and it's touching Samaria and it's touching uh, Judea but whenever you get to where it transitions over unto Paul I'm not saying all the time but most of the time he is one that is dealing with the Gentiles and he is operating from Antioch whenever he was uh, put a hand of blessing upon his life an endorsement in Acts 13 to go forth and start his missionary journeys it happened there from the place of Antioch but it doesn't stay there it goes even out to the uttermost the scripture says until Paul finally is in prison and will later die in Rome but prior to the book of Acts we read in scripture that the 12 that are known as the 12 disciples are normally called that in the gospels. Most of the time they are referred to as the 12 disciples. But in Acts and after Acts, they are usually called then the apostles because it is in Acts and at the end of the gospels that these men are sent forward to do the work of the Lord. They are sent forth to preach. They are sent forth to teach, to baptize in the name of Jesus, all these different things. So in Acts and beyond, they're normally called apostles. You'll still see some people in Acts called disciples, but it's only because they have become new believers in Christ during the time period of the book of Acts. And so much of the attention that should be given to the message and to the Acts of the apostles is because they were first Hand, they, they heard firsthand what the Lord spake and what he did. And they confirmed those things, as Hebrew says, unto us. As Peter says, they were eyewitnesses of his majesty. These apostles had first string information concerning the Lord Jesus Christ because they lived during his time. Paul says in Hebrews 2 and verse 3, he says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard them. He's making reference to those first disciples and apostles that had heard the teachings and the wonders of the Lord and they confirmed them unto us or as Paul was speaking himself. And he said in verse four, God also bearing them witness both with signs and wonders and with divers miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his will. These men were there were when some of the lame walked. They were there whenever the blind eyes were opened. Some of them were on the Mount of Transfiguration when they seen the Lord change. And they were there on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Ghost fell. And so we have accounts of those who were there in the saddle, so to speak, with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we, we got to give some credence tonight to the words of the apostles even in our day. 
Because Jesus had even told his disciples, his apostles, he told them, he said, those that receive, that receive me, he says, or those that receive you, he says, receive me. Whenever Jesus came himself, he was being an ambassador of heaven, and he came and said, those that don't receive, do not receive the one that sent me. And the one that sent him was God, according to scripture. And so he spoke to them also. He said, whenever you go somewhere and you speak to people, he says, if they do not receive you, that's unprofitable for them, because if they will not hear your words, they are in essence not hearing my words, because I'm the one that have sent you I am the one that have commissioned you and so the words of the apostles whether it be Paul or or Bartholomew or one of the others are very important because the words they bear the message they bear is not their own but it is the Lord's it's the Lord Jesus Christ they are God's and so if we are to reject the apostles words we are to reject the words of the Lord because they are ambassadors they are speakers and messengers for the Lord amen And in particular, in particular, it's important to give attention to what Peter said and done. The reason being because in the Gospel of Matthew 16 and verse 18, Jesus was speaking unto Peter and said unto him, And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee, who? Peter. I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, Whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The word church, this is the first time the word church was ever used in the Gospels. Here in Matthew 16 and verse number 18. First time it was ever used. And Jesus is telling Peter, he says upon this, which was a revelation that Peter had because the Lord asked him. He said, boys, he said, who do men say that I am? He said, well, some say you're Jeremiah. Some say you're Isaiah. Some say you're one of the prophets. And then he got personal and said, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter spoke up and said, thou art Jesus the Christ, the son of the living God. That was a revelation. Amen. That flesh and blood had not revealed to Peter. It came from God. And he said, upon this, upon that revelation, I'll build my church. Amen. Upon the revelation of who Jesus was. And so the church that was built upon the revelation of who Jesus was then is no different than the church that should still be being built now. We're still built upon the revelation of who Jesus Christ is. Someone say amen. And here's the thing. We cannot totally understand who Jesus Christ is or, under, or, or obey it, if you will, without understanding Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The, the totality of the resurrection of Jesus is that he was one that was sent down, amen, and that God indwelt that body called Christ Jesus for the purpose that there would be blood and there would be flesh that could hang on the tree and blood would be shed for you and I so we could get the remission or the removal of our sins. Christ says upon the revelation of all of that, he says, I'm going to build my church. Why? Because even New Testament in the epistles, Christ said that he had purchased what? The church with his own blood. But in order to have blood, he had to have a body. In order to have a body, God had to have a woman, have some flesh made by her. According to Galatians 4 and 4, God sent forth his son made of a woman. 
amen, and all that provided the purchase price, if you will, for the church. And so the church very much so is dependent upon the revelation of Jesus Christ and the blood that came about because of his part walking here in humanity on the earth. But we need to give ear to what the apostle Peter says among with all the disciples, but particularly Peter, because Christ told Peter, I give you the keys to the kingdom. I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And so it's vitally important then as the church that we follow the instructions of whatever Peter described throughout Acts, throughout the epistles, throughout the word of God. Amen. And so in reality, we've called it the book of Acts. Some call it the Acts of the Apostles. And I would like to pin on there perhaps the best description of it at all. It's the Acts of the Holy Ghost. It's the acts of the Holy Ghost. Because the acts of the apostles is only this. It's the acts of the Holy Ghost working through the apostles. If you see somebody uh, getting healed by a shadow of one of the apostles, or if you see them laying hand on someone, they're receiving the baptism of the Holy Ghost. That wasn't Peter. That wasn't Paul. That wasn't Philip. That wasn't John. But that was the Spirit of Christ that they received in Acts 2 that was working through them, empowering them for the healing to take place, the miracle to happen, or someone to receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost. So from Acts 1 to Acts 28, it is the working, the acts of the Holy Ghost. With that being said... The church that is still alive and in the world today, it is not the propagation of the pastor of any assembly or any denomination for that matter. If anything's going to happen today in this end time day of our time and our place, if people still going to get the Holy Ghost, still going to be healed, still going to receive a miracle, I guarantee you this, it's still going to be the acts of the Holy Ghost. It's the only way it can happen. That's the way God's church operates. This is by and empowered and through by the Holy Ghost. And so then in the Gospel of John, we read John, or the Gospel of Luke rather, we read Luke and he's describing about God, how God is going to be with men. He talks about that Christ that comes into the womb of Mary being called Emmanuel, God with us. But Luke puts his pen to the page again in Acts and he's not writing now about a God that is so much with them as a God that is in them by virtue of the Holy Ghost. Amen. And so it's the Acts of the Holy Ghost. Why do you say that? Because I just did a quick little run of the words Holy Ghost today and seen everything that the Holy Ghost did in the book of Acts. Whenever I did a little run in the book of Acts over the Holy Ghost, here are, here's what the Holy Ghost was doing in the book of Acts. The Holy Ghost baptizes, the Holy Ghost fills, the Holy Ghost sanctifies, the Holy Ghost falls, the Holy Ghost anoints, the Holy Ghost comforts, the Holy Ghost witnesses, the Holy Ghost chooses, the Holy Ghost appoints, the Holy Ghost presides, the Holy Ghost directs, and the Holy Ghost just controls everything that goes on in and around about the church. And it should be no different today. It's the Holy Ghost. And so the Bible says that Luke records in Acts all that Jesus began to do. While Acts is the record. When we look at Acts, Luke, he begins to record all that Jesus began to do. That's what he told uh, Theophilus in Acts chapter number one. He said the former treaty, which was Luke. 
He said, I made oath the office of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. The former treaty in Luke. But in Acts, he records then what Jesus continues to do through his church. The gospel, what he began. Acts, what he continues. But through the hands of those that have surrendered their lives to him, the church. And so Acts describes the church. We could say it like this. Acts carries on the life of Christ in the church, in the world, in our nation, in our community, in our culture, across the, all over the place. There is the church that's carrying on the life of Christ. Amen. Now, Acts is very important because, number one, which we may not be ignorant of, is that it is the birth of the first century church. Vitally important. The birth of the first century church happens in the book of Acts. But it is also very important because it acts like a bridge Acts does between the Gospels and the Epistles. See, there would be a lot of head scratching and confusion if it wasn't for Acts because the Gospels, most of the Gospels end with the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord. Some of them even portray his ascension up into heaven. But whenever we get to the epistles, the epistles contain then a lot of instruction given to the churches. What churches? Huh? Where'd that come from? Right? I mean, I know in Luke they had gathering of multitudes and so on and so forth, but there wasn't anything denoted or spoken of as the gathering together of a per se church. And so now you're talking about churches, and it's not just churches. It's not just a church in Jerusalem. It's churches that's over here in Ephesus. Church over here in Colossae, church over here in Galatia, churches here, churches there, churches everywhere. It's talking about churches. And we're talking about churches, then not just a Jewish church. We're talking about Gentile church, Samaritan churches, Jew Gentile churches. And so if it wasn't for the book of Acts, you would not know where all of that came from. If it wasn't for the book of Acts, we, there, if you would start reading the epistles, which were mostly written by the apostle Paul, you're going to say, who is this guy? Where did he come from? Because you don't know his story, his background, or his conversion had it not been for Acts. You, didn't, you wouldn't have known that he was a persecutor of Christians and hated the church and got changed if it wasn't for Acts. But you'd be reading everything in the epistles about how he's doing all these things for these different churches. Who's this guy? And you wouldn't, you wouldn't appreciate what he wrote in the epistles as much if you didn't have Acts because you wouldn't have known his personal story of where God brought him personally and, and won him and brought him into the church personally. For that matter, without Acts, without Acts, there would be some of the words that were promised in the Gospels that we wouldn't necessarily see their exact fulfillment in the Scripture. What are you saying? Because in the Gospels that end with the, the, the death, burial, and the resurrection, Jesus promised some words in the Gospels about waiting for the promise of the Father. If it wasn't for Acts, we would never see the arrival of the promise of the Father. Now, we would see, well, churches were formed. Evidently, something happened, but Acts unfolds it and let us see the fulfillment of that promise. Amen. For that matter, he promised to them that they should preach this first where at Jerusalem, how in his name. Acts displays that promise that was spoken in the gospel. So we would be without that. Not only that, he spoke to them in John 14. He said, I'm not going to leave you comfortless, Jesus told them. He said, if I go, I will come to you. If it wasn't for Acts, 
We wouldn't see, we'd see that he left, but we would not have seen where he came. And so Acts is important because it's the birth of the church. Some of the promises are fulfilled there. And it acts as a bridge between the gospels and the epistles. It gives us some understanding about some of those things. Now, I'm being mindful. Acts was written probably, and the, the, you can read everything aside from Sunday. But I, I am of the persuasion that it's likely written around A.D. 62, 64. It covers a time frame from about Jesus' death, ascension, to the time when the Apostle Paul is in his imprisonment in Rome at the end of his life, which is then a time frame. The book of Acts is written over a time frame of about 30 years. Let me tell you, there was a lot that happened in 30 years of time. I'm telling you, the church was born, and it went from there and exploded from Jerusalem to the farthest parts of their known world, Rome. And the Apostle Paul even had in his plans to go into Spain, which would have been the furthest that they knew at that time, although he died in his process of trying to get there. Let me tell you, that, that is a good testimony of any individual dying in the process of trying to achieve all of their lives go. And he said, I'm going to go to Spain, but he died in the process of trying to get there. Amen. And so about a 30-year history. When we read Acts, Acts is a defense of the Gospels. It's apologetic, which means it's a defense. It's a defense of the Gospels. Preaching is very important to the book of Acts. There's sermons in the book of Acts. There's speeches shared in the book of Acts by different ones. And they're talking about the gospel. They're talking about the resurrection, the life of Christ. Even in the book of Acts, they're, they're preaching the same things that were preached unto them. As a matter of fact, if you were to go through the book of Acts, Peter had about eight sermons or speeches that he gave. Paul had about nine sermons or speeches he gave. Stephen had one. James had one. But together, all these messages, all this preaching in the book of Acts, all together, all these messages make up about 25% of the book of Acts. There's preaching, apostolic preaching. They're preaching about the life and the work of Christ. They are preaching to defend the resurrection because that was a big thing that people were having a problem with. They couldn't, they couldn't find the body. Amen. Christ had revealed himself to those who had followed him in those 40 days before he ascended. And their preaching was a call to repentance. How many times do you hear in the book of Acts a call to repent? A call for remission of sins. A, a call of faith, of crying out to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Very strong biblical content. content. If you look at Stephen, as I said, he goes all the way back to Abraham. He traces through, the, the, through Egypt and Pharaoh and all the way up to his present time. He knew his Bible and he preached what he knew unto them. Now, I want you to understand though something. I realize that evangelism... Winning new souls and converts evangelism will not be done simply by preaching. But I do state that the overall success of the church is dependent upon God's word. And the reason why I say that is this, because evangelism is great. People were added to the church as such as should be saved. He said, the Lord even said that his house might be filled. He wanted new converts. He wanted people in the church. But what good is evangelism without instruction? And this is the reason why I say that. Because Hosea said in Hosea 4 and 6, he said, my people, everybody say my people. He said, my people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge. He wasn't talking about somebody that he was reaching for, but someone he had already reached. Were destroyed because of the lack of knowledge. So here it is, the safeguard for people that's one in evangelism getting them to the church, being baptized in Jesus' name, filled with the Holy Ghost, the safeguard to them is the preaching of God's word. 
Because after they get into the church, they need something that's going to help mature them in the church and keep them in the church, and that takes the Word of God. I wish we could all just get whatever flavor snow cone we want and pass out popsicles and lick them and that would just get the job done, but it don't. There must be instruction and admonition concerning the word of God in order to help us in that, in that growth. The Bible tells us even in 1 Peter 2 and 2, the apostle Peter, he said, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of what? The word. Why? That ye may grow thereby. The word makes the church more than just a new convert daycare. All right? It helps them grow and mature in the Lord. Someone say amen. So it's very important. As we'll find out later in our study in Acts 6, there were seven men that were found full of the Holy Ghost that the 12 took and put over serving tables so that the Bible tells us in verse 4 of Acts 6, so that the 12 could continue to give themselves to what? Prayer and the ministry of the word. And here is the results then in verse number 7 over them doing that. Since they did that, since they put them over serving tables and, and delegated that so that they could continue to give themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word, the Bible says that the results were this, that the word of God then increased and look at, look at, if you will, the result and the number of the disciples weren't just added, but they multiplied. So it's important not to subtract the word, but have a good balance. Everybody say balance of both evangelism and the word. All right? Because I've seen people on both spectrums. I've seen people so entrenched in the word, they don't do no evangelism. But there's others that are so involved in evangelism, they don't have no word that can keep the new converts that they got saved because they won't get rooted and grounded. And so it's a proper balance of both. And you'll find that many times throughout Scripture. I've seen people say, man, I read this in Scripture, and it seems like over here it's almost saying something else concerning that. Well, what the Bible's trying to do is give you balance. Mm-hmm. We need balance, amen, in our lives, and balance that we can get from the Word of God. So there's something that's brought up there in Acts 6, not just in 6, but even in Acts chapter number 1 that I think is a very other important topic in the book of Acts. So not only is the word important, but prayer. Prayer is important in the book of Acts. Prayer was important to the early church. Jesus was recorded as saying in all of the gospels except John, he said that my house may be called or is even the house of prayer. And so the church's beginning in Acts at its point of origin was that. It was a praying church. As a matter of fact, in Acts 1, the prayer in Acts 1 precedes the coming of the Spirit in Acts 2. Mm -hmm. The prayer preceded the power. The prayer preceded the Holy Ghost. And so that tells me as a church today, if I still want the divine visitation of the Holy Ghost and I still want the endowment of power today, let me lavish some prayer and proceed in prayer because prayer preceded the coming of the Spirit. For that matter, folks, when you do a survey of the book of Acts from chapter 1 to chapter 28, 
prayer precedes almost every significant event in the book of Acts. That's not a, okay, big deal. No, that's a big thing. In other words, those significant things, those signs, miracles, wonders, this happening, that happening, someone getting out of prison by divine intervention, all that, most of it, you'll read a little bit before it happening. You know what the people were doing or a group of people or one person, somebody was praying. So I surveyed it for you just a little bit. So if you can endure my list, there's only 152 verses. No, I'm just joking. I did survey it. So in chapter 1, as we already mentioned, they had like a 7 to 10 day prayer meeting before the Spirit came in Acts 2. In Acts 2, though, it wasn't that they prayed to get the Spirit, but the Bible tells us in the 40 somewhere, 46, 47, that prayers continued after they received the Spirit. So not only is prayer crucial for the Spirit coming, prayer is crucial for the Spirit continuing. In Acts chapter number 3, what happened? Peter and John were on their way where? To the temple at the time of what? Prayer. Whenever this divine intersection met up with a lame man that whenever it was all said and done was no longer lame, but he was healed. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John prayed, the Bible says. After they prayed, there was a shakening of the place and all those that were gathered together were filled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost. But the seedbed of it was prayer. In Acts chapter number 6, the Bible says the 12, as I stated, were given to prayer and that they prayed over the seven. And as a result, the word increased. Disciples were multiplied. In Acts 8, Peter and John prayed at Samaria for several. And the Samaritans, the Bible says, when they came and prayed, received the Holy Ghost. And they even admonished Simon, who was once a sorcerer. You know what their, their advice to Simon was? Buddy, you need to get to praying. Man, there is no better, there's no better advice for a new convert to let him know you need to get to praying. You need to get to talking to God. Because things happen as a venue and an avenue of prayer. In Acts chapter 9, Peter prayed, and guess what happened? Dorcas was raised from the dead. Woo! By venue of prayer. In Acts 10, we have Cornelius, who is a Gentile. That's not saved, Brother Zach, but he knew how to pray. He's praying to God in his house. And over here we have the apostle. We have Peter over here. He's praying in his house. And because someone that's lost was praying and someone that was saved was praying, God set up a divine intersection between the two where Cornelius got the baptism of the Holy Ghost because two men, one had a vision of the one that was lost and the lost had the vision of the one that was saved. And there was a divine intersection that God got them together and did something by both of their prayers. So prayer is vitally important. Amen. In chapter 12, prayer was made for the imprisoned Peter. And if you remember, he was divinely delivered. An angel grabbed him and said, let's get out of here, Pete. Amen. All of the chains and shackles fell to his feet. He got through the first ward, the second ward, the third ward. And he's standing in daylight and thinking, man, did I just dream this or what? No, somebody was praying over at John Mark's house. Amen. Happened as a result of prayer. Something significant happening after prayer. In Acts 13, they prayed before Barnabas and Paul was sent. 
And if you, then you will trace the lives of Barnabas and Paul in the book of Acts. They had much influence over spreading the gospel to areas that it had not even been before. In chapter 14, they prayed, the Bible says, and they were commending the elders to the Lord. They prayed so that they would have proper leadership in their churches. In Acts chapter 16, the Bible says that they went down by the river in Philippi and they prayed. And you know what? There's a lady there by the name of Lydia from Thyra, Tyra. God had already started work on her heart and there's already been prayer. And whenever they started to deliver the word, guess what happened? She's converted. And here's a good comp a compilation then of prayer and the world, word and God already working on a heart and she's converted. At that same place, look at this. This is amazing to me. The Bible says that they are headed to prayer. All right, prayer's important in Acts. They're headed, and for the church, they're headed to prayer and they're met by a lady of the divination that had a demon uh-huh oh, apostles a little tired of this so he prays and deliverance is given to her let me just make a side note right here if you're ever going to be uh accosted or 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 taken advantage of by the demonic did not demonic or evil forces it will be any time you try to go and head in the direction of prayer And something happens. Something, something, you know, chaos happens. You go try to pray, everything under the sun. You know, all the boats come loose on the car. The wash will flip out. I mean, it will all shake loose. Every phone call from every Tom, Dick, and Harry with every problem is going to show up right as you start heading toward prayer. <laughs> Amen. But here's the thing. If you impress on toward that and pray anyway, something significant will happen after. And someone say after. After you pray. Paul and Silas in prison, what'd they do? Remember when Mop and just here, they prayed. Significant event, prison doors are open for everybody. The jailer's house, his whole household is saved. Somebody prayed. Acts chapter 20, the Bible says that Paul prayed before he departed to go to Jerusalem, knowing that he was probably going to be taken in chains and all along on his journey. Uh, from this holding place to that holding place, being heard by Agrippa, being heard by Felix, being heard by Festus, finally being heard by Caesar at Rome. All along the journey, you can read in chapter 21, chapter 22, you know what Paul's doing. Paul is praying. So much so in chapter 28 when he ends and he shipwrecked, folks. He shipwrecked on the island of Melita. And the Bible says that Paul prayed for the father of Publius and God healed him. Paul, listen, here's, here's the summary of the story. God, Paul prayed in the middle of his shipwreck and God healed somebody. So the next time you don't feel like praying in the middle of your shipwreck, go on and give it a chance because you don't know what God may be up to through your prayer in the middle of your shipwreck. Amen. Someone say pray anyway. Pray anyway. And so tonight before we paint some lofty idea, concerning the early church you know sometimes people look at the book of Acts with these glasses and our eyes are widespread and we're thinking you know what that cannot be achieved today that cannot be achieved today before we get some lofty idea that what happened in the book of Acts can't be achieved let us not forget that the book the church that was in the book of Acts was not a perfect church they had their pitfalls they had their shortcomings there's the Ananias and Sapphira accounts. Listen, huh? There's a lot of other even accounts beyond those that shows the pitfalls, even in the epistles. You know, most of the epistles were written because there were problems, particularly Corinthians. 
And so whenever we read this, all of these pitfalls, the, the church, the first church was not a perfect church. All right. But what the church in Acts is, is the original state of the church. And so sometimes people scream, my goodness, we got to get back to Acts. You've heard it. We got to get back to being the church in Acts. Well, let me tell you, we're halfway there because we still got a lot of the problems that the book of Acts in the Pistol Church had. Amen. We're halfway there. Because a lot of us have some of the same problems. All we need to do is add prayer, add a strong proclamation of the word, add evangelism efforts to that. Amen. Let the signs and miracles confirm God's word. Amen. And we need the operation up mostly of the Holy Ghost in the church. Everybody say in the church. Now there's some transitions in the book of Acts. Because as I stated, it started in Jerusalem. started in Jerusalem primarily for the Jews. But it was a Jewish church. Remember, he said he came, first of all, to the house of Israel. But it didn't stay like that. So in, in Acts, we see what starts in Jerusalem, what starts primarily with the Jerusalem church, evolves. So much so that when we get to the end of Acts, this isn't just now about the church at Jerusalem. This is a church that has spread many different areas. And for that matter, at that stage, it was probably predominantly a Gentile church people who were not Jews that were in it and that were saved and renewed. So it, there's a transition between it just being solely Jew to spreading out to en encompassing the Gentiles and the Samaritans, a mix of Gentile and, and, and uh, Jews. And not only that, there's this other transition in the book of Acts because in the Gospels, you read through the Gospels, there's, there's a sect of people called the Pharisees, the religious rulers. The Pharisees that gave the disciples a lot of headache in the Gospels. All the time trying their patience and calling them on doing that or the other. Even Jesus, you know, not perform no miracle on the Sabbath. All these different things. But whenever we get to the book of Acts, their opposition even changes. It's not so much the Pharisees anymore. It's the Sadducees that are giving them a bunch of problems. And primarily, probably the reason why it's the Sadducees giving them a lot of problem because the Sadducees, and I always say this, but it helps people remember, they are sad, you see, because they didn't believe in angelic visitation and they didn't believe in a resurrection. And so the reason why they're given a lot of trouble in the book of Acts is because the message of the book of Acts is all about Christ being resurrected and how he's now empowering his church. And so the Sadducees are going to throw up their stop sign hand. No, wait a minute, that can't happen. There can be no resurrection. Amen. But we understand from the Gospels, if, if he did not resurrect, then we're dead in our sins, folks. If it didn't happen, then we can't be saved. We're dead in our sins. And so they preached that message. It was oftentimes refuted, but in the book of Acts, that doctrine is taught over and over concerning the resurrection. Thirdly, there's a transition. There's a lot spoken about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God leading up to it. But then in the book of Acts, there is a lot spoken about, particularly the church. And we'll come to find out later, there is no discrepancy. Because Christ told them that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, it's not something that's out there. It's not some real natural, physical thing that you're waiting for the restoration of the nation of Israel to their rightful place. No, he said the kingdom of God is within you. Uh-huh. By virtue of that spirit that they received on the day of Pentecost. Now look, Acts 1 and 1, it told us, that the gospel of Luke was all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. So we understand then in the gospels, Jesus's ministry was a doing ministry and it was a teaching ministry. And here's something important, and maybe, maybe not, the way in which it's worded, it's the doing then the teaching. Because you can teach when you're doing it. 
You understand what I'm saying? I think I brought this up before. Fred, you're not going to teach anybody how to paint a vehicle if you don't know how to paint a vehicle. You can teach it if you do it. You can teach it if you practice it. That's Jesus' ministry. It was a doing, teaching ministry. And so that's just how he did it. For instance, to look that his doing was also in many modes teaching. Whenever Christ even did some of his miracles in the New Testament scripture, let's just take, for instance, just a couple of them. The miracles were not simply for, although they were to a certain degree for that, they were not simply for just glory, but they were also lessons. Here's what I mean. Whenever he healed the blind man and he could see, that wasn't just a miracle, but that was also a testament to the lesson of him being the light of the world. Whenever he broke bread and fishes and fed the 5,000, that wasn't just a miracle while he fed 5,000. That was also a testament to the lesson, behold, I am the bread of life. So that even in his doing was his lessons, his, his teaching. And so there is sometimes a, a mark of distinction, but also a link, if you will, between the doing and the teaching. We read, what did Jesus do? One of the primary things that we understand that Jesus was to do was in Luke 19 and verse 10. The Bible says, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. All right. Well, what did Jesus command? Well, in the closing of Luke, this is what he commanded to uh, his disciples. Luke 12 and verse 44. Let me read just a few of these, several of them, really. And he said unto them, these are the words which I spake unto you, that while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. And said unto them, Thus it is written, Thus it behoove Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And ye are witnesses of these things. And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. And so when we read about the death and the burial and the resurrection and even the miracles, that are recorded in the Gospels, they are just the beginning of the Lord's work. They're just the beginning of the Lord's work. There must be a continuation of that work. Do you mean there's got to be somebody else that's got to go to a cross and die and be buried and resurrect? No, not in a literal sense, but that experienced, that experience in our lives through repentance, baptism, and the infilling of the Holy Ghost does need to continue in his church. There needs to be a continuation of that. The resurrection perhaps is paramount all throughout Acts. It's the foundation of the doctrinal preaching of the church. But here's what Jesus was basically telling them in Luke. He was telling them, listen boys, I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be buried. I'm going to rise again. And because of that, I want you to go to Jerusalem and I want you to preach repentance. And I want you to preach baptism in my name for the remission of sins. And I want you to preach the baptism of the Holy Ghost, the promise of the Father. Because of what I did, you go forth and preach about it. That's what I want you to do. And so there's this link then between his teaching and his doing. God's word has many references in the book of Acts. And many times when his word is there, you'll see along with that increased converts, 
amen, many, many times. There's records of growth. You can read in Acts 2, 5, 6, 9, 12, 16, and 19. There are particular verses that speaks about the increase of the growth of the early church. So it's no surprise then in Romans that Paul would even say that Christ had worked through him, had worked through him by word and by deed. What was Christ doing through Paul, he says? He says, Christ, Christ was by word and deed, by teaching, if you will, and by doing. Christ worked through me. The work continued. The teaching continued. His spirit was working through me in his church, both in Acts and in the epistles, to share the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're to continue. And here's the thing. The Bible says that whenever the Lord, prior to him ascending, he was with his disciples for 40 days. And he showed himself alive because they had known him to be dead. He showed himself alive, the Bible says, by many infallible proofs or by many conclusive proofs. How did he do this? Well, in those 40 days, this man who was dead talked with them. This man who was dead had them feel him, touch him. This man who was dead ate with them. Not only that, he didn't just show up one time during those 40 days. There are several occurrences during those 40 days that he showed up to one person or a group of people. This many, that many. As a matter of fact, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, 5, Paul, looking back over this, he says, speaking of that time frame that Christ was seen before his ascension, that he was seen of Cephas. Then of the 12, after that he was seen above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James and then of the apostles. He's speaking of several people that he was seen by. So by many infallible proofs of speaking, letting them feel him, eating with them, he was proving to them that, hey boys, I'm not dead. I'm not dead. I am very much so alive and well. How infallible and convincing was Christ in those 40 days? I'll tell you how much so. Because in John 21, the disciples are back out on a boat. They are fishing. Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, is on the shore. And he tells them, children, you have any meat? Come and dine. Come in and dine. And the Bible says this in John 21 and verse number 12. In other words, Christ had appeared to them so many times during that 40 days and proven to them so many times that he was alive. The Bible says when Christ said, come and dine, they said none of the disciples durst ask him, who art thou, knowing that it was the Lord? He had proven it to him time and time again, so much so that there in that occurrence, they said, we don't have to ask who that is. We know who that is. That's the Christ that was dead, but is alive forevermore. Because listen, folks, they would not have the confidence, the authority, or be able to convince anybody else concerning Christ if they weren't convinced themselves. You hear me? Our testimony, our preaching will not be convincing to anybody unless we're convinced first. Mm -hmm. We must be convinced of his power. We must be convinced of the ability of receiving the Holy Ghost according to the scripture. We gotta be convinced that he does forgive sin and wash them away because if we're not, we're not gonna be able to convey that to anybody else. We must be convinced of those matters. And there was something about the resurrection that changed the relationship between Christ and his disciples. Before they're kind of chummy, you know. 
and they're all the time with him. Here, there, ever, all the time with him. After the resurrection, he kind of comes every once in a while. But if you'll notice, they're a little bit more reverencing of him than what they were before the resurrection. Because, you know, before, disciples going around, who's the greatest? I don't know, I feel pretty good myself, you know. And they're all debating over this and that. We don't see that type of nonsense after the resurrection because they understood they were in the presence of greatness. They were in the presence of greatness. So there's something about the resurrection, we might say, of Christ that should change our relationship with him. Because in that moment, in those 40 days of time, they knew that he was alive. I'll close with this because we don't have any time really. The book of Acts, many might think that it kind of closes abruptly because you're reading about this long old story about Paul and all of his journeys and he's in prison giving all of his speeches and the book of Acts just kind of closes with Paul being in prison and somebody might be hitting the thing there hey what's going on you didn't finish the story it's like it's like reading a book and it has an ending like now what am I supposed to do with that we're kind of we're missing something here aren't we there are a few pages tore out of the back of this book it's like a book that closed a little prematurely and so here's Paul you know he's been in prison this whole time giving the speeches and we just leave him like we just leave him like that in the book of Acts. And so some people, man, you know, that kind of, that's an abrupt ending, you know. We're leaving Paul right there in the book of Acts. Here's the moral of the story, folks. Acts isn't about Paul. It's about the spirit of Christ. So you can leave Paul in prison if you want to. What we're really tracing is the spirit of Christ that's in the lives of these individuals. If you can stand with me. I think this quote here perhaps describes the journey of the book of Acts the best. And I'm talking to us tonight. It's an overview of the unfinished record. And the quote is this. One man said it, I think it's best. said, Acts is the unfinished record of an incomplete work. Why? Well, Paul's still in prison. Yeah, but this is the story of the Spirit. The Spirit hasn't stopped doing yet. The Spirit hasn't stopped functioning yet. The Spirit hasn't stopped doing all these things. And for that matter, it's an incomplete work because Luke says, I just recorded what Christ began to do and began to teach. And he's still teaching and he's still doing, but he's doing it through me, through you, by his Spirit. So what are you saying? I'm saying, get out your pen because there's a few chapters you could add to the book of Acts. Your own personal story of conversion, your own personal miracle, your own person. It's still doing and it's still teaching. It may seem though it ended abruptly, but it's not that it ended, it's just that it's not finished. Woo! It's not finished. It's not finished. Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you for your attendance. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you and have a blessed day.